Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. On this show, we break down some of the most controversial, complex, and even polarizing topics facing our society. We use honest, good faith analysis, backed by research, to form our conclusions. And we promise to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving you our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and personal biases, and they will show through sometimes. But the goal of this show isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics and present the most truthful information available so that we can discuss and address these issues in a thoughtful, beneficial way. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that, again, might feel polarizing, but we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations, and we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Way back, way back in May 2022. So long ago. Which, yeah, it, it's only a few months, but let's be honest. Let's be real honest here. Um, the amount of news that has gotten <laughs> hacked into our brain since yeah. then makes it feel like years. Not to mention private life stuff. Just, oh, it's been so much, guys. Mm-hmm. President Biden in May, however, announced his intention to host a conference on hunger, nutrition, and health in September. That's this month. At that time, the announcement didn't attract all that much attention, despite the clearly expressed goal to effectively end hunger, increase healthy eating and physical activity, and decrease the impact of diet-related diseases in the U.S. by 2030. No big deal. Not a big deal, right? Minor goals. Uh, But now the administration has set a firm date for this conference, September 28th, and has started talking more in detail about what they hope to accomplish in the next seven years. The purpose of the conference is to coalesce the work of anti-hunger and nutrition advocates, food companies, um, the healthcare community, and local, state, territorial, and tribal governments to launch a national plan to outline how we reach that admittedly really big goal. Really big goal. Uh, lack of access to healthy, safe, and affordable food, and then lack of access to safe outdoor spaces are huge contributors to those problems. Uh, But tackling even one of those issues involves unraveling a mess of other co-occurring problems. And then when you layer on the fact that the toll of hunger and diet-related diseases disproportionately impacts communities of color, people living in rural areas, disabled people, older adults, the LGBTQ plus community, military families and military veterans. That's even more to untangle. So one of the primary outcomes of this conference is supposed to be a strategy that outlines very specific initiatives that we can undertake, that a variety of stakeholder groups can undertake, organized around five core themes. Uh, The first one is improve access and affordability of food, right? Pretty straightforward. (laughs) 
make it easier for everyone to access and afford food. This includes everything from expanding eligibility for food assistance programs to improving transportation to places where food is available. Yeah, that makes pretty much a lot of sense. Um, The next one, integrate nutrition and health. Essentially, this means recognizing and prioritizing the role of nutrition and food security in overall health care. The foods we eat or don't eat can have a significant effect on all aspects of our health, especially disease prevention and management. And our healthcare system needs to take the nutrition needs of all people into account. Exactly. Number three, empower all consumers to have access to and make healthy choices. Uh, The goal here is that everyone would have all of the information that they need to make healthy choices. That workplace policy and school policy would reflect information on nutrition and health, and that messaging on nutrition and health would be intentionally created to be relevant to specific cultures and communities. Support physical activity for all. This is the fourth initiative and uh, one I can really get behind here. This means increasing the amount of research being done around physical activity and health, increasing awareness of the benefits of physical activity, and especially ensuring that more people have access to safe places where they can be physically active, which can be particularly challenging for, say, disabled people. Uh, people who live in high crime areas, and people who live in in these dense urban environments. The last pillar of the conference and the strategy, enhanced nutrition and food security research. And yeah, while it seems like we hear something new about how what we're eating is killing us every day, there really isn't a lot of high quality research being done on the importance of nutrition or how we can address disparities in access to nutrition. This conference will set a goal of gathering improved nutrition metrics and data that can be used in nutrition and food security policy, and then encouraging people to do more research on issues of equity when it comes to food and nutrition. Yeah. Now, if all of this goes well, um, this could be the first action of this type taken in more than 50 years, basically since President Nixon gathered the leaders of the era and started the work that led to the creation of the big food programs that you and I know today, like food stamps and child nutrition assistance. Um, But the conference really isn't the full story here. We've got to ask why the United States has a problem with hunger in the first place. We are, by many standards of measurement, the richest country in the world. Our GDP per capita, which is the number you get when you take our total gross domestic product and divide it by the population of the U.S., that number is $69,285. U.S. farmers and food producers export more than 20% of what they produce for a total of $177 billion U.S. dollars. So we have money and we have food. Why on earth is this conference, why on earth is hunger even a thing? Yeah. Uh, To be clear, we are not taking the time to dive into the causes of food insecurity today. Uh, They are many, ranging from our obsession with meritocracy and the idea that a person is only worthy of what they're able to work for, um, to the outsized gaps in earning and wealth distribution in America. 
We will try to find some good resources that talk through those things to share with you on social media this week. Uh, But really, we're going to focus on how big of a problem food insecurity is in the United States and what we've done historically to try to address it in order to kind of set the stage for this conference and the strategy that are coming. Okay, so again, first question, how big of a problem is hunger in the United States? Um, One would think that there should be plenty of food for Americans to eat and plenty of money to pay for it, based on what we just said. But that appears to not be the case, especially in the wake of COVID and the economic impacts that it had on U.S. families. Um, But before we get into the numbers, we've got to cover a few definitions that are really key to this conversation. When organizations and researchers talk about lack of access to food in the United States, they use a few specific terms that we want to walk you through. First up is food security. What does it even mean? Um, It was first used in the 90s, 1990s. Uh, First used in the late 20th century. Oh, my God. Yeah. Isn't that weird? In the 1900s. In the 1900s. In the late 1900s. Um, anyway, this term has become the prevalent way to talk about who has enough to eat. The definition relates specifically to whether or not a person or a household has enough access or has access to enough food for an active, healthy lifestyle. So not just bare subsistence. Um, if a person or a household has access to enough food to support a healthy lifestyle at all times, they are considered food secure. If not, they are considered food insecure. And then within the bucket of food insecurity, we have low food security and very low food security. People or households that had low food security obtained enough food to avoid substantially disrupting their eating patterns or reducing their food intake through a variety of means, including eating less varied diets. Basically, you know, whenever you see shopping carts at the store filled with ramen and macaroni and cheese and cans of tuna, that sort of thing. Um, Or participating in food assistance program like SNAP or getting food from community organizations. For those households with very low food security, the normal eating patterns of one or more members of the household were disrupted and food intake was reduced at times because there was insufficient money or access to other resources for food. I've heard, I've actually heard several stories about people I know, like my friends or Mm -hmm. the parents of my friends who talk about going without meals so their children can eat. Yeah. um, Psychotic. I mean, not that they're being psychotic, but just the fact that that exists in America is psychotic and and that's very low food security. Right. Um, And then hunger, which kind of gets tossed into the mix, um, is, I mean, biologically, it's the uneasy or painful sensation that is caused by a lack of food. Um, Most of us experience the feeling of hunger every day of our lives uh, because the feeling alone is a biological necessity. It signals us to drop in easily accessible calories. It tells our body that we need more energy. Uh, But in Right. Exactly. Always. No, I'm actually not a Snickers fan. Uh, But in this context, it's used to describe a longer-term experience that results from a lack of consistent access to food. And then malnutrition is what happens when our bodies don't have access to the essential macro and micronutrients that are found in food. 
Malnutrition can lead to improper development, disease, and a host of other health issues, and it can be a direct outcome of food insecurity, especially very low food security. So how big is this problem really in the United States? Like how many Americans are impacted by these issues? Is it a huge deal or is it kind of just like, well, it would be nice to get rid of it? And I if, was flabbergasted. Yeah. I was flabbergasted by this data here. So data gathered by the U.S. Census Bureau in December 2020 showed that 10.5%, so roughly 13.8 million U.S. households were food insecure in 2020. More than 5 million of those households had very low food security in that year. Um, and note, this isn't 13.8 million individuals. That number would be significant enough if that's what it was. Um, but this is households, which can contain one person or many, many more people. Uh, like think of the Duggars, right, from the TLC show. At one point, their household was 22 people. <laughs> so we're not saying that each household is 22 people, but the numbers vary so significantly. Um, Feeding America, which is a very prominent organization that works to support in food insecure people uh, put the total number of Americans in food insecure households at more than 38 million, including 12 million children. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's <laughs> like, <amazing>. what? <laughs> what? And then, well, I any kind, any kind of household can experience food insecurity. There are some household types that have a higher prevalence of food insecurity, higher than the national average, that 10.5%. Um, these rates of food insecurity were higher than average for households with children, especially those under the age of six. In most of these households, adults carry the burden of food insecurity. Uh, they work to ensure that the children have enough, even if they have to go without. But even still, 584,000 children experienced very low food security. They did not have enough to eat in 2020. I can't. Anyway, uh, households headed by a single woman or a single man are more likely to experience food insecurity. Um, households that are solely made up of single adults are also more likely to experience very low food security. Which makes me... I mean, it makes sense to me because those households are maybe even single income households or relatively mm -hmm. uh, low income households and, and how cost of living right. <laughs> adds up. It <laughs> adds does. Up. And, and, you know, if we a lot of people don't have much experience with how these uh, food security programs or or social benefits programs work, but it is actually significantly more difficult for a single individual, adult individual, to access these kinds of resources and benefits than it is for a household or a family with children. Um, and so they are, you know, single people are more likely to experience that very low food in, food security. Um, households whose reference person, who the adult whose name is on the mortgage or on the lease, is Black or Hispanic, are more likely to experience food insecurity. And then households with incomes below 185% of the poverty threshold. Um, to put that in real numbers, that is $48,555 for a household of four. 
That's not insignificant. More than 35% of households in the United States earn less than $50,000 per year. So more than 35% of households are at higher than average risk for food insecurity in the United States. Mm. So what that means to me and something that we want to address is that um, this can impact everybody because uh, not (laughs) – I guarantee that 35% of households in the U.S. aren't uh, aren't composed or comprise lazy households, if you will, lazy workers. And that's, right. that's something we've heard folks comment about in similar, similar situations. And, and maybe you have too. Um, you know, the, the people are just lazy, but it's, it's not necessarily true. It's not necessarily lazy people who don't want to work or didn't make choices that put them in better income brackets. Think about the income level we just discussed, right? That's $50,000. Where Robin lives in Missouri, where I used to live, that's considered a pretty decent living. That's, a, that's, that's very livable. You'd be earning somewhere about $23 an hour, uh, which is, I would have killed to make $23 an hour when I lived there. Right. Um, and as a single adult, you would still be at an increased risk for low food security. According to uh, data from 2018, more than 75% of the households that received supplemental nutrition assistance via the SNAP program, um, people, 75% of the households that received those benefits included at least one person working. About a third included two or more workers. A report from the Government Accountability Office in 2020 found that 70% of adults receiving SNAP benefits and Medicaid worked more than 35 hours per week. So clearly not all lazy people. Even those serving in the U.S. military and their families experience food insecurity. A report from the Military Family Advisory Network found that as many as 20% of military families experienced food insecurity in 2021. In other words, they had to use coping strategies like reducing food variety, relying on assistance programs, utilizing food banks to ensure that they had enough to eat. Surely nobody would accuse our service members of being lazy or mooching off the system. They, yet they are experiencing the same issues other American families face. High child care costs underemployed spouses, high transportation costs, unexpected emergencies, natural disasters, car repairs, you name it, that all eats into your ability to provide yourself with a consistent and varied diet. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line here is that there are too many types of Americans experiencing or at risk of food insecurity for it to be a character issue. This is a systems issue. So- And, and it, that's not new, right? The knowledge that this is a systems issue is not new. We've been working on this for a while and we haven't solved it yet. So um, one of the things that is coming up in these conversations about this, this conference coming up this month is how we've addressed the problem in the past. What did we do before? This is the first conference of its kind since 1969 when the Nixon administration held the White House Conference on Food, Nutrition and Health. 
Uh, it was the first and so far only White House conference on that topic, attempting to put an end to hunger in America for all time and improve the well-being of all Americans at a time when concerns about malnutrition were at the forefront of, um, of, the, of our minds, right, American people's minds. Uh, the conference came after a 1967 study of hunger in the Mississippi Delta that essentially rocked the country. It Everyone was shooketh. Uh, shooketh. <laughs> shooketh. The study reported that, and this is a quote here, we saw homes with children who are lucky to eat one meal a day. We saw children who don't get to drink milk, don't get to eat fruit, green vegetables, or meat. Their parents may be declared ineligible for the food stamp program, even though they have literally nothing. We do not want to quibble over words, but malnutrition is not quite what we found. They are suffering from hunger and disease, and directly or indirectly, they are dying from them, which is exactly what starvation means. A different report, this one by the Committee on School Lunch Participation, published in 1968, uh, 1968 uh, <laughs> identified one of the core issues causing the problem. Um, whether or not a child, this is another quote, excuse me, whether or not a child is eligible for a free lunch is determined not by any universally accepted formula, but by local decisions about administration and financing, which may or may not have anything to do with the need of the individual child. And generally speaking, the greater the need of children from a poor neighborhood, the less the community is able to meet it. The net result is that the children in the neediest areas must go without an adequate noonday meal at school, or perhaps an adequate meal at home, or none at all. Committee determined that the frankly absurd lack of adequate food for children was caused by inadequate funding at the federal, state, and local levels. A third report called Hunger USA by the Citizens Board of Inquiry into Hunger and Malnutrition in the United States, just rolls right off the tongue, yeah. found widespread hunger throughout the country. And then CBS aired a documentary called Hunger in America which pulled no punches and focused on American children dying of malnutrition. Yikes. Yeah. Suffice it to say, the American public and their representatives in office were well motivated to do something by the time the White House held this conference promising to, quote, provide free or reduced price lunches for every needy child in America. The outcome of this conference was Senator George McGovern and Senator, <laughs> Senator Robert Dole, uh, who we all know is Bob Dole, but our source used the full name and therefore so did we. Uh, they established the Senate Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs. Together with the other members of the committee, they fomented several changes to federal school meal programs, including changing the funding mechanism to use a formula that actually took family income into account and applied uniformly across all school districts. This change, uh, this change also guaranteed that school districts were paid for every meal that was given to a qualifying student. And the effects were fairly immediate. From October 1968 to October 1970, the number of children that received free or reduced price meals more than doubled. By 2019, the National School Lunch Program provided lunches to 29.6 million people every day. Uh, 
And of those 29.6 million students, 20.1 million of those lunches were free. 1.7 million were reduced price, and the remaining 7.7 million were full price. Um, This is obviously far from the only federal food assistance program. For for example, there's the uh, National School Lunch Program sister program, the School Breakfast Program. In 2019, this breakfast provided, or this program provided breakfast to 14.7 million students every single day. 11.8 of those were free, 740,000 were reduced price, and the remaining 2.23 million were served at full price. Which really indicates how, how low the bar is for food insecurity in America. If the vast majority of yes. the lunches given out in schools are free. I was uh, really surprised to learn from a friend this week who is a a part of a military family. Her husband is in the military um, that a good portion of military families, their children qualify for free and reduced lunches, which it's insanity. Yeah. And and like, I don't I want to be really careful how we talk about that, because I don't want it to be any sort of like an actual status marker. I'm surprised by that because I feel like with the way that we um, budget for the United States military and the way that we try to treat our service members, um, the idea that their families would not have enough to eat is shocking to me because their whole career is in service of the United States. Like if anyone should be provided for it should be them. Like that's kind of my yeah. um, where I, my level of, of frustration and confusion is coming in. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Like it doesn't make sense that that it, first of all, it doesn't make sense that we have this many people who need free lunches. Yeah. Like who qualify for them because yeah. of, of need. Right. It doesn't make sense. How? 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 It's I had actually expected it to be the opposite. Yeah. I expected the vast majority to be you know, paid lunches. Yeah. What? 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 And also, like, why aren't they just completely free? Right? Like, well, now we're getting into a different whole other (laughs) question. I know, I know, I know, I know. America's how how America values people and, and, you know, what you deserve. And we can't talk about that here. We don't have time. Scope. Let us Talk about some other programs that are outside of the school. There are the, the big hitter programs. We've already mentioned one. You've likely heard of them. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP. Um, uh, there's also the Food Assistance for Women, Infants, and Children, usually known as WIC uh, program. 13% of the population of the United States, which is 41.5 million or one in eight Americans, participated in SNAP in fiscal year 2021, one in eight, I guarantee you, mm-hmm. everybody listening to this knows eight people. Mm-hmm. Imagine one of them having to get like, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, just because you know eight people doesn't mean one of them does, but you get the picture, right? Like th- it, it, crazy. Studies have found that SNAP benefits reduce food insecurity. Great. Um, one study found that participating in SNAP reduced households' food insecurity by about five to ten percentage points, and reduced very low food, very low food security, um, which, like we said, is when one or more member of the house has, household has to like skip 
meals by five to six percentage points. Additionally, SNAP benefits are they're like a fast and uh, effective form of economic stimulus just in general because they get money into the economy quickly. It's widely studied and known that individuals with low incomes generally spend the majority, if not all, of their income because they have to to survive. They don't sock it away. Mm -hmm. So if they get money, it is almost immediately put right back into the economy again. It's a highly mobile dollar. Um, and that's because they have to pay for shelter, food, transportation, and childcare. They don't have anything to hold back from that. So every dollar in SNAP that a low-income family receives frees up a second dollar to spend on food or other items. It's not like they can just put that money in the bank. They just use, they just use it to cover other bills, basically. Yeah. According to a 2019 report from the USDA, every dollar in new SNAP benefits increases GDP by $1.50 in a weak economy. The Congressional Budget Office and Moody's Analytics have also found that SNAP has one of the largest cost-to-benefit ratios among a wide range of policies intended to stimulate growth and create jobs during a recession. Again, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I have, I have so many feelings about that. Like, I love that it's beneficial, but also why does making sure that people have enough to eat what we have to do to stimulate the economy in the United States? I just, I put it in when I was re researching this because in invariably, anytime one of these programs comes up, they talk about mooching and how it's a burden on mm -hmm, the economy mm -hmm. and how it's US tax dollars going, basically going to waste. Um, when like the, the, the truth is literally the opposite, right? <laughs> it's literally the opposite. It is good for the economy. It's good for the GDP, especially when we're struggling, like say coming off of a, a global pandemic or, you know, mm -hmm, a housing mm -hmm. crisis. Mm -hmm. hmm. It's a good hmm. investment, guys. Uh, as for WIC, it serves nearly 8 million qualifying women, infants, and children. <laughs> WIC provides a plethora of services, including nutrition counseling and nutrition classes, breastfeeding support, smoking cessation support, and healthcare and social services referrals. Um, however, WIC is not meant to provide all of the food that a family with children needs. It's, um, it provides vouchers for specific types of foods that tend to be lacking in the diets of low-income women and young children. So like whole grain bread, baby food, infant formula, and milk, as well as separate cash value vouchers that they can only use to buy fruits and vegetables. Um, and that's actually fairly new. Um, so basically, it's, it's just intended to shore up some of that lack of food variety that we know that people default to when they are food insecure. Uh, considerable research shows that WIC contributes to positive developmental and health outcomes for low-income women and young children, like healthier births, more nutritious diets, stronger connections to preventative health care, and improved educational prospects. Each of these, in turn, leads to cost savings to the American taxpayer in the compounding returns like fewer hospitalizations and medical emergencies for un- or underinsured individuals, a healthier overall population, and higher performance in schools. It's good. It's a good investment. Crazy. Hungry I... people don't perform well. Who could have guessed? Shocked. 
Uh, I mean, these programs aren't perfect, of course. For example, several reports have raised concerns that SNAP benefits are too low because they fail to take into consideration things like variation in food pricing caused by geography or the specific nutritional needs of the individuals in the household. Uh, For example, gluten-free food is usually more expensive than the usual versions of the same food. Uh, Time costs that are accrued for things like food preparation. The work requirements, while obviously beneficial on their face, may also cause some people who are unable to find work due to job or time scarcity, family care obligations, or other reasons outside of laziness to go without adequate food, right? So uh, a lot of people are required to work to get SNAP benefits. And if you can't do that, then um, in the most clear definition of a vicious cycle, you don't get get help eating which means you can't anyway Anyway. it's dumb so the way it works is if you are not employed uh, in most circumstances there are there you know exceptions but in most circumstances you only get three months 90 days worth of uh of snap um every three years yeah it's not a lot it's not three months to 36 months you need to eat more than three months out of three years to live three years. It's I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. That's just a guess. I don't know. It just, uh, that seems unnecessarily cruel. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. Um, anyway, so back to this, this conference. Uh, so far, like what, what is it? What is, what's being proposed? Um, what programs might we seek that, that come out of it? Well, <laughs> <laughs> So far, there really haven't been many potential policies previewed. That was fun. But lawmakers and food security groups alike have been compiling recommendations and forming strategies for months now since May, obviously. NPR was able to review several recommendation briefs, and they reported uh, policy proposals like expanding universal free school meals and school cafeteria resources, Um, And then boosting nutrition assistance programs as well as specific outreach to immigrant, Native American, and other marginalized communities. That's something that we didn't even bring up in this. Um, But we food deserts are a thing. We have talked about them. We talked about them uh, in our uh, Native American History Month coverage uh, either last season or the season before. Um, I really can't either. I can't believe it's been three or we're in three. Um, but a lot of a lot of people who live on reservations, for example, they don't have a readily accessible produce store. Yeah. The 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 nearest place to buy food might be a Seven Eleven, uh, and everything else might take hours, literal hours, to mm-hmm. get there. So food runs are few and far between, and you have to have things like reliable transportation to get there in the first place and money to pay for the fuel and the transportation, all of these things that compound and make the problem worse. Mm -hmm. So there are specific solutions that need to be developed for uh, different populations within America. We can't just throw a one-size-fit-all blanket over it. It won't work. So... If history is any indication, there will be a lot of policies proposed out of this conference. The 1969 White House conference produced 1,800 recommendations. That's a lot. 
And shockingly, to me at least, who has worked in the government now for years, 1,600 of them were actually implemented. That's crazy. That's incredible. That's a I massive completion definitely ratio. Definitely thought that was a typo. Definitely thought yeah, it was. Yeah, it's it wasn't. I I read it twice. Um, yeah, no, that is true. There's been about half as much time, however, to prepare for this conference as that one. So it might not meet the same threshold. But then again, we've also had over 50 years yeah. of technology and growth, uh, making it easier for people to work together and get stuff done. And with all the remote work practice the world got with COVID, <laughs> maybe we'll be surprised. Right. Who knows? And, and maybe we don't need 1,800 recommendations. Uh, you know, maybe we need less than that if they're highly effective. Yeah. And that's, you know, just because 1,600 of those recommendations were implemented doesn't mean there are 1,600 like good, solid, impactful right. recommendations. I was just surprised that that many got wrapped into this and, and, and implemented. That's oh, still yeah. great. But I would rather have two or three highly impactful uh, programs or policies developed than 20 or 30 uh, that just pick up people on the margins. It doesn't yeah. really help anybody. Regardless, regardless of the outcome, hopefully this will spur developments that will continually improve the situation. Um, ooh, here we go. Darius. Uh, I know I practice this name. <laughs> Darius Mozafarian, professor at Tufts University School of Medicine, working. He's working to form this conference or he's part of the group working to form this conference. He believes Food is the biggest issue underlying the fight for things like better health and equity and health care access and economic outcomes for Americans. And I, I got to say, I, I'm very inclined to agree with him. Mm -hmm. um, he will be measuring the success of this conference, not by how many recommendations come out of it, but by the impact on the conversation it has. He said the bigger picture that will be a measure of success is if this starts to enter the national conversation, political conversation, business conversations, people are actually looking at the food system as a problem and an opportunity. So if this spurs on that conversation where it's not a, a burden necessarily that we have to sacrifice to solve, but it is an opportunity. It is something that we recognize has to be addressed and mm -hmm. that there is benefit to it. That is how he will mark the success of this particular conference. And I don't think that that is a particularly hard argument to make. No. I think it's pretty easy to draw a straight line from, hey, <laughs> this is bad and fixing it will fix America. Like, that's pretty easy to connect the two. Yeah. Why not fix America completely? But but, but it's a foundational issue. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, that's one of the reasons that we wanted to talk about this. I also am very eager to see what comes out of this. I, uh, I had a, a lot of feelings writing this episode because um, I was that kid who grew up, you know, food insecure. That is not the word that we used for it. Uh when I was much younger, but I was a kid who grew up on food stamps and we did have to change the types of food that came into the house. And every Thanksgiving meal that I had for probably five or six years came from a food bank and very kind people. Like I was, I was looking at pictures of uh, food banks and stuff for the episode art for this. And I, I can smell 
those photos, right? So this is a, a really um, big part of my childhood, a part of my memory. Um, we ranged from, you know, being consistently on food stamps and having everything that we needed to eat to having large swaths of time where we weren't quite sure where any food was coming from for a couple of years. And so um, the idea that any child would have to engage with life in that way is very saddening to me. And so uh, this, I'm, I'm very hopeful that hopefully these uh, programs and the recommendations that come out of this can change the way that that looks for my kids' friends. I mean, I want to say something like 70, 75% of, of the kids at the schools that my kids go to get free and reduced lunch. And Well, I mean, yeah, that would make sense based on the numbers that we saw earlier. Right. Yeah. And, and like, I don't know, the idea that the kids that I deal with every single day are in this place, the same place that I was, it makes me very motivated to participate in any way possible to keep other children from having to, to um, I don't want to say endure, right? Because kids are so resilient and we don't really think about it in the moment, um, but to keep them from having to have their lives shaped by those factors is yeah. what I would say. And, and adults yeah. too, yes. Um, but children are the most innocent among us. And so if we can fix it for them, then very often we can fix it for the grownups too. Yeah. You know what doesn't need fixing? What doesn't need fixing? Firesidebreakdowns.com. That is accurate. It's gorgeous. It is accurate. It's a great website. You should check it out, guys, because there you can find uh, links to our social medias. You can find all of our show notes with our sources, which is pretty cool. If you ask me, you can find basically the script that we write for every show. If you like to yeah. read things, if you want to review it, um, we put that up for every single episode. You can also find links to our Patreon, which you can use to throw dollars at us. If you support what we do, if you would like to, we would be very appreciative of that. Yeah. We're supposed if that's to have not your jam. Quarterly happy hour coming up soon. Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Um, and if that's not your jam, then we can go ahead and just take a review from you. That would be fine, too. We would love that. Um, that would be super cool. It does, like, it is necessary for the podcast to be recommended to new people. So please feed the algorithm. Give us a review. That would be awesome. Let's talk about good news. Good news. It's a double good news week. I'm super it excited is about it. a double good news week. I'm going to let yeah. you go first, though. All right. Yeah, there was just too much good news this week, and we had to give you an extra double barrel dose. Yeah. Um, so first, a piece of timely good news that is highly relevant to this podcast, which we just love. Mm -hmm. The Office of Science and Technology Policy, OSTP, which is not pronounceable, by the way. OSTP. OSTP. Terrible. Anyway, this week... They delivered guidance to publication agencies instructing them that reports and articles containing scientific research that has been taxpayer funded must be made available to the American public immediately upon publishing at no cost. Heck yes. 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 That is such a big deal. It is so hard to find reliable research. Ask us about it. Ask us about it. We'll tell you the struggle. Uh -huh, uh -huh. We are EBSCO host 
power users at this point. We'd like to thank the local library. Yes. Um, yes, it is great. This removes the previous option that agencies had to put the articles under a 12-month embargo. They can't do that anymore. The new mm-hmm. rule also expands the definition of scholarly publication to include not only peer-reviewed articles, but also book chapters and conference proceedings, which can be very, very useful too. Very good information can come out of those things. So that's great. It's going to make it a lot easier for us to find quality information that we can share with you in a timely manner, rather than waiting up to a full year to be able to access what isn't available to us through EBSCO, through our local libraries. So Three cheers for that. Thank you very much, Austin. Yes. Um, Then also on the relevant side of things, we wanted to highlight some good work that is being done by an organization called Food Forward in Los Angeles. Since 2009, Food Forward has recovered and redistributed 266 million pounds of fresh fruits and vegetables that would have otherwise gone to a landfill. I'm sharing them with people in 12 California counties, six adjacent states, and tribal lands. Every year, something like 100 billion pounds of food is wasted in the United States. Estimates we've seen range anywhere from 80 billion to 108 billion pounds. And in California, which produces a significant amount of the produce that's grown in the United States, uh, a lot of that waste comes from orchards and farmers markets and even backyard fruit trees. Uh, Food Forward collects that produce and donates it to hunger relief agencies who then pass it along to food insecure folks. The importance of the micronutrients like the vitamins, minerals, and other compounds that are found in fresh fruits and vegetables can't be understated, especially for people who are forced to limit the variety of the food that they pick up at the grocery store or for those who rely on what's donated to a local food pantry, which tends to be canned or processed items with a long shelf life. That kind of work that Food Forward is doing is so important, and uh, we really hope to see more organizations like this come to the forefront as we're having conversations about how to improve access to nutritious food in the coming months. Yeah, 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 because remember, um, people are hungry year-round, not just at Thanksgiving. So as much as I love the Thanksgiving food drives and think they're great and wonderful, um, the fact that they exist is honestly heartbreaking. Right. So let's maybe get rid of that. Yeah. That'd make me very happy. Yeah. Uh, that's all for us this week, folks, keeping you in on time and on budget. Boom. I don't know. I just, I always see that next to road work signs, uh, which <laughs> makes me laugh. Uh, so we will come back at you in one week to talk to you about other cool stuff. Um, until that time, thank you so much for listening to us. We hope that you'll leave us a review because you like us. And take care of each other.